Okay, uh, so I am going to quick throw up my uh, screen for you here, and hopefully this is going to work. Yay, great. Um, all right, so just a really quick recap of where we've been and where we're going. All right, so um, we are talking a little bit about um, the spiritual world. Last week, we did kind of an overview. Today, we're going to talk about angels, primarily, um, or really good spiritual beings. And then next week, we'll talk about bad spiritual beings. And then our final week, we'll talk about Jesus and what Jesus wants us to become. Okay, so briefly from last week, um, we talked about a whole bunch of big ideas. So we talked about the idea that when God created the world, he created two kind of sets of realities, right? A physical world and a spiritual world. And we get that um, metaphorically with the, the heavens and the stars representing the spiritual beings. But we see that kind of throughout the scripture. And physical beings are like animals and people and that's what. Um, we talked a lot about this word Elohim. Everybody say Elohim. Okay. Um, anybody remember what Elohim means? Gods. Okay. Or God, right? Both are correct. Yep. Yeah. Or spiritual beings. So the word Elohim is an is a, uh, interesting word in scripture. We talked last time about how it is the masculine plural version of El, which means God, and can mean, and most often means, big G God, like Yahweh, right? But often, not, not as often as big G God, but often it means little G gods, plural. Sometimes it's translated as sons of God or holy ones. We'll see some of that tonight. And we talked about this idea that there are a whole bunch of spiritual beings and that our God is above them all, just as he is above all physical beings. But he is a spiritual, um, he is being itself. Anyway, um, he is spiritual in nature, whereas we are physical in nature. Right? Um, so I, I used the metaphor last time that, you know, technically Vatican City has like, I don't know, 100 Swiss guards has a military, right? But if you stack their Swiss guards against the United States Army, you wouldn't even be able to find them in the, in the crowd. Right, that's you know comparing God to other spiritual beings, God to the U.S. Army. Okay, hopefully that's not too radical. All right, um, and then and then I said the big idea is that God desired for these two spiritual realities to overlap, right? For the spiritual world and the earthly world to connect. And we talked about Eden being a place like that. We talked about the temple and the tabernacle being places like that. That ultimately, of course, Jesus is where it happens fully. But that God's desire from the beginning before sin and after the resurrection of Christ was that humanity would be the place where spiritual and physical come together. Right. <laughs> uh, and then last but not least, last week we talked about what went wrong. And we said that not only were there physical rebellions against God where we ate the fruit, but there were spiritual rebellions. And unfortunately, instead of the spiritual beings and the earthly beings allying in praise and honoring God, we allied and rebelled against him, okay? And because of that, ultimately, we're going to need a king who can um, reconcile the spiritual and the physical. We're going to need a dual king. All right. So that's where we ended last week. Um, tonight, uh, we're going to talk about the, um, the Elohim that are faithful to Elohim, right? So the spiritual beings that are faithful to God. Tomorrow, or not tomorrow, but next week, we'll talk about the spiritual beings that are not faithful to God, all right? So we're gonna talk about four big, 
we have time, I hope, four big ideas or categories of those spiritual beings. We're going to talk about the divine council. We're going to talk about cherubim. We're going to talk about angels. And if we have time, we're going to talk about the angel of the Lord. All right. Uh, again, we are indebted to the fantastic series of videos done by the Bible Project. And so I've got a few of those I'm going to show you tonight. And a really short one as we begin that kind of sets up some context about where we were last time and then talks, kind of begins our conversation about the divine council. Oh, but you know what I'm going to need to do? I'm going to need to play that video. Hang on one second. I, I uh, skipped it. I skipped them all. Oh, gosh, that was a really good idea earlier. Not a good idea now. All right, here we go. Jim, you've got some people that are talking over you. Oh, yeah. You know what? And if you're, you might just try muting yourself if you're on online in case you're getting some sound. I can mute you. You can unmute later if you have questions, too. Thank you, everybody. Hey, Jim. Let's see, Jim. Here we go. All right. For most of human history, people have believed in some kind of spiritual realm that exists alongside the world as we know it. Right. And the biblical authors are no exception. Yeah. For them, the spiritual realm is a different kind of realm than ours. And to highlight that difference, the Bible refers to God's space as the sky or the heavens. Because the sky is really different from the land. It's above and beyond. And up there are shiny bodies that move around. I think of these as flaming gas balls. But when the biblical authors looked up, the stars gave them a way to talk and think about spiritual beings. In the Bible, they're called the sons of God, or the rulers and authorities, or even sometimes the divine council. So that sounds really important. What does the divine council do? Well, they're introduced in Genesis chapter 1, where they're called the host of heaven, that is, the sun, moon, and stars. And there, they're also called signs, meaning that their power and status symbolizes and points to God's power and status. Yeah, so in Genesis 1, God appoints them to rule over the day and night. Exactly. And then later in the Bible, we're told that they were celebrating God's power and creativity when he created the world. Like the cheering section of a game. Yeah, right. There are also stories in the Bible where God invites the divine council to participate in making a decision. Like when they help decide how to bring down the corrupt Israelite King Ahab, or in the book of Job, where they debate God's policy of rewarding people who do good. So they're like God's staff team. But why does God need a team? If he's powerful enough to create the whole universe, he could surely rule it without any help. Well, he doesn't need them. But apparently the God of the Bible wants to share authority with others. Oh, right. God shares his rule with human partners on earth. And so in the same way, there's a parallel story of God sharing his authority to rule with spiritual partners okay um this is an idea i don't know that we hear very often this idea of the divine council anybody heard this phrase before okay um so it, it actually shows up a number of times in scripture um and i really like this metaphor of the divine council as god's staff team okay so um we see this several places i'm not going to quote all of them but here's a couple of examples in Psalm 82, the first verse, um, Elohim, God, big, big G, God, Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, little gods, he holds judgment. Um, or maybe a more familiar passage that doesn't use the phrase, 
who captures the idea is Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 is a, a vision of um, heaven, and we're going to come back to it several times tonight. Um, but verse 4 says, around the throne, around God's throne, there are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Okay, now if you've read Revelation before, you, I hope, have thought, been told to think, hey, that's like the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, 12 plus 12 is 24. And that's correct, but it's just not the whole story. Okay, um, so that, that group of elders um, represents this, this Old Testament idea of the divine council. Um, let, me, let me give you a couple examples where you really see this in action. One of these is in the book of Job, okay? Uh, and in uh, Job chapter one, actually probably a fairly familiar passage in Job, we get the story of, of Satan coming to God to talk about um, this guy on earth. But listen to the context of the story. Um, so this is Job chapter one, verse six. One day, the heavenly beings, what, what Hebrew word do you think that is? Elohim. Elohim, good. One day, the Elohim came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh. And also, Hasatan, the Satan, we'll talk about that next week, but we'll get there. Hasatan also came among them. Yahweh said to Hasatan, what, where have you come from? Hasatan answered the Yahweh, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down in it. Then Yahweh said to Hasatan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Hasatan answered Yahweh, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job feel Elohim for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Hasatan, Satan, Very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so we, we get this scene of like a heavenly court, not a courtroom where you judge things, but a, a court where a king or queen keeps court. And, and around the, the king, the Lord, are all these attendants or courtiers, right? They're the Elohim. And one of them is Hasatan, the accuser, Satan, right? And there's a conversation in the divine council about what to do about Job. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, in Second Kings, the very end of, I'm sorry, the very end of First Kings, um, chapter 22, I believe, there's a moment where um, the two kings, a good king Ahab and a, I'm sorry, a bad king Ahab and a good king Jehoshaphat are going to go to war over a city called Ramoth Gilead. Okay, you don't really care about those details. What you care about is that in the courtroom of those two earthly kings, they call in all these prophets because they say, hey, before we go, we should ask God if he's going to bless our war. And all the prophets say, yeah, it's going to be great. But the good king says, I'm not sure I trust any of your, your prophets, bad king. Are there any prophets of Yahweh we could ask? And so they get this one guy named Micaiah. And this is chapter 22, verse 19 of 1 Kings. Then Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing beside him to the right and to the left of him. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab? so that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead. Then one said one thing, 
and another said another, until a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. How? the Lord asked him. He replied, I will go and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then the Lord said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do it. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so you, you, you see the divine counsel in action, right? God uh, and all of these little attendants are, are in conversation about what to do in this situation. Now, we don't get these moments very often in scripture where we get to see up until what's going on. Um, but we get this idea again and again of this, this group of spiritual beings that are with God that um, he consults. Does God need their help? Clearly not. Does God need our help? Clearly not. Right? But as our author said, as our video said, God enjoys sharing authority. Right? Okay. Um, so this brings up some really important interesting questions for us. One of those comes back to the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4. And um, in, in Micaiah's vision, he says um, that he, he saw into the presence of God. He saw God on the throne, and he saw the host of heaven around him and all these spirits. Right? What he's saying is he was in the council chamber of God, right? and he got to hear from God while he was there. Um, this is the vision, and we'll talk about this later, that people like Isaiah and and Ezekiel and Daniel have, right? If they see themselves in God's council chamber with some of these spiritual beings. Um, and, and the question is, how do you know who you can trust when they claim to speak for God? And the answer is, they have to have been in the presence of God, right? They've, they've got to be a, a, a true um, speaker of his counsels. And so what's really neat about Revelation chapter 4 and those 24 elders is the idea is, Boy, in the fullness of time, humans have earned, not earned the right, but been given graciously the right to be in God's counsel all the time, right? Those 24 people are now with the angels and the rulers, part of the heavenly counsel of God, like Micaiah was for a moment, right? And you know, one of the challenging things for us is to say, hey, as I hear someone who claims to be speaking from God, are they really in God's counsel? Do, do they seem to know what it's like to be in God's presence? Because if they don't have that experience, then they're probably not going to be a trustworthy voice. Uh, and if you want to read that passage of Jeremiah, that's basically his point. Okay. Um, one last thing on this topic, and then I want to pause. Uh, there are several places in the Old Testament where we get really interesting moments where God speaks in the plural. One of those is uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, where God says, Who shall I send and who will go for us? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Uh, another one of those is, of course, most famously, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Lord um, we will make man in our image, right, according to God's likeness. So we read those stories um, as about the Trinity. Right? And I don't think that's wrong. But the Jewish readers don't read them that way. Right? They read them as though they are the divine counsel. Right? God speaking to this group of assembled spirits who are his subordinates, his servants, talking about what he's going to do. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Um, oh, gosh. Before I do questions, I got one, one more thing about this. Um, uh, so I know it would be easy to make this mistake. So it'd be easy to say, oh, the Trinity and the divine council sound like similar ideas. So just put your hand out there. 
and then just smack it. No, totally wrong, okay? No, 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 no. The Trinity and the Divine Council are totally different things, okay? So the Divine Council is one God and lots of lesser beings. The Trinity is three persons who are equal in power and status who are all God, right? So really a, a bad analogy would be, you know, the Trinity are like the owners of the company and the, uh, and the, the council is like the employees. Are you with me? You know, more than one owner, but you got all the power for the owner. You can fire the employees, right? Okay. Um, so when we read the Trinity into a passage like Genesis chapter one, we are correct, but we're reading at a deeper level than our Jewish sisters and brothers would read it in, right? They're going to read it as the divine council. We're going to say, yeah, but that's because you don't yet know the full story. If you knew the full story, you'd know it's not the divine council that he's talking to when he's talking about making us in his image. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit saying, let us make humanity in our image. Okay, let me, let me pause there for a minute. Divine counsel, making sense? Questions about that piece before we move on? Yeah. Great. So the king of Israel, Ahab, is bad. The king of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jehoshaphat, is good. All right. So this person here that they're referring to is a bad king. Yes. All right. Yeah. So one of the divine council members said, I will go and put a lying spirit in his mouth. God, Yahweh, says, okay, we'll do it. Yes. <laughs> so so we're talking about i don't know if you can hear bob or not but we're talking about that passage in first kings and two, two things about that, that i think are really important one is um you notice that even though god is letting them make decisions and have some agency he is ultimately in charge right so they are coming and bringing suggestions and he's the one who says that's my plan you may go do that Right. So without God's approval, they're not going to do it. Um, the second thing is, and we'll get into this more next week. You'll notice, especially in that Job passage, not necessarily everybody in this court is good. Right. So we're going to focus more on the good ones tonight. Right. But it's a little awkward that Satan's up there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Other questions, Jim. The question is, although they are beings, are they discerning spirits? By that, do you mean are they in, in, um, like intelligent in the way that we are intelligent? Yes. Yes. So, so the, we, we do uh, some things we know and some things we conjecture, right? Um, but it seems pretty clear to me that these spiritual beings have the same moral agency that we have. They can make righteous choices. They can make sinful choices. Um, they don't, what, what is different about them, and we'll talk about this next week a little bit too, that what they don't have is original sin, right? So they don't, they don't have the, the history of the sin of Adam carried in them. Um, so that's a little different. And they don't have a tempter like we do, right? I mean, Satan was one of them. So no one tempted Satan, right? Um, so that's going to change their dynamic a little bit. Okay. Um, ready to keep rolling?
We're going to talk about another component of the spiritual beings, okay? Actually, two more. We're talking about cherubim and angels, which are slightly different things. So I got another video for you, and um, I want you to pay real attention to what a cherubim is versus what an angel is. And we're going we're gonna to quiz you a little bit when we're done, okay? We've been talking about spiritual beings in the Bible, and we've looked at how God is in the heavenly realms, but not by himself. There's a whole staff team that the Bible calls the divine council. But in the Bible, there are still more beings in the spiritual realm, like the cherubim and also the angels. So let's talk about them. Okay, first, the cherubim. These are chubby little babies with wings, right? No, you got to get that image out of your head. Cherubim, or in Hebrew, cherubim, they're way more fascinating. They're described as hybrid creatures, a collage of different animals. And every time they do appear, they look a little bit different. That's intense. Yeah, they're supposed to be intimidating. They stand guard at the boundary between heaven and earth. If you see them, you know you're entering the presence of the one who is above all and truly other. The first time cherubim show up in the story of the Bible, they're standing outside of the Garden of Eden. Right. The garden is God's temple residence. And so he places these spiritual bodyguards at the entrance so that the rebel humans can't get back in and ruin everything. But the biblical story is about how God wants us back in his presence. Yes, exactly. So this is why he chose the people of Israel and gave them the gift of a symbolic miniature Eden called the tabernacle and then later the Jerusalem temple. In both of these spaces, cherubim were painted and engraved all over, reminding the priests that they are working in God's presence. Now, if a priest went into the Holy of Holies, he would see there a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant, and on it were two cherubim. What's going on here? Well, the biblical authors describe the Ark as the footstool of God's throne, which the cherubim are carrying. Like we read in Psalm 99, God sits enthroned above the cherubim. But there was no actual throne above the box. Right. The Israelites weren't supposed to represent God with any physical image. But when the prophets had visions about this space, they saw Yahweh sitting on his throne. Okay. So cherubim guard the sacred space, carry God's throne. But why do they look like animal mashups? Well, they're symbolic representations of all the creatures of the earth because they all belong to God. This is why in Isaiah's vision, all of the creatures are singing. Everything that fills the earth is God's glory. Like a choir. Yeah. Through the cherubim, all creation offers praise to its maker. Great. That's the cherubim. Now let's talk about angels. I'm way more familiar with them, human-like figures with feathery wings. No, wait, stop. Angels in the Bible don't have wings. What? No wings? No angel wings. In fact, angels are often mistaken for people because they look like us. Just a bit more impressive. But the cherubim have wings. Yeah, and the angels are different because they have a different purpose. Okay, which is? Well, humans can't just march into God's realm. So God will reach out to us, and he often does so through these spiritual ambassadors. So angels are like spiritual messengers. Yeah, in fact, that's what the word angel means, a messenger. Right, this happens a lot in the Bible, like the angel who tells Mary she's pregnant with Jesus. Yeah, and then the other main role of angels is to perform missions on God's behalf. Sometimes they rescue people from danger, like when Peter is released from prison. And there's some really cool angels, like Michael, Gabriel. Yeah, the name Gabriel means God is my power. And Michael means who is like God. But also notice, these names point to God, not to the angels. Like humans, the angels are images of God's presence and power. But still, how cool would it be to meet an angel? 
and maybe you will, and maybe you already have, but no one in the Bible is ever encouraged to go looking for angels. And when angels do show up, people are usually puzzled or freaked out. So angels are really awesome, but they play a supporting role in the Bible. Yes, because God's ultimate purpose is to bring humans back into his presence in a reunited heaven and earth. And in the meantime, he uses angels to guide and to serve his people. Okay. Uh, now, how do I, there we go. All right. So tell me a little bit about what you heard. Um, what's, a, what's a cherubim? Give me anything you heard about a cherubim. You don't have to give me all the details. Just give me anything. They're, they're chubby babies. That's great. I'm so glad you're here. That's, that's really helpful. Okay. What'd you say? They are intimidating. Yeah. Uh-huh. For sure. Yep. Good. They're a mashup of animals. Okay. Fantastic. Great. They serve as guardians. Fantastic. Good. Okay. Awesome. Um, do they have wings? Yes. Cherubim wings. Yes. Okay. All right. So, um, just briefly here. So to recap, cherubim are, are, are throughout the Bible. They're actually mentioned quite a lot. Uh, so I think the words used 63 times, but they show up a lot of places. They, they show up before angels do. So in terms of the word cherubim or the word angel, cherubim show up first. And that's in Genesis. We mentioned chapter three, verse 24, guarding the entrance to the, the um, Garden of Eden. And as you guys mentioned, the video mentioned, regularly they are guardians of God's presence, right? So they are there sort of between everything else and God. Um, the, the last line of defense, not for God, but for everything else, right? So that everything else doesn't get, you know, destroyed by the awesomeness of God's presence. They're, they're there, right? Uh, and by the way, that's why they're at the garden, right? They're not at the garden so that we can infect God with our sin. They're at the garden so that we don't wander in and get smote. Right, because because we can't handle being in the presence of God when we're sinful. Um, we, they mentioned the video, but they show up a lot in the tabernacle and later in Solomon's temple. And so, literally, there are two golden cherubim on the on the cover, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, in the temple, uh, five hundred years after the Ark is built, Solomon builds a temple. And in the temple, he has it's much bigger than the tabernacle. He has two very, very large, like six, eight foot golden cherubim um, statues that surround the Ark of the Covenant and that Holy of Holies. But also cherubim are, are throughout the tabernacle. So um, there's a veil. Remember the tabernacle is, is primarily a, a, big, a big fenced in area with one tent in the middle. In the middle, there's two rooms. There's the holy place and the most holy place. And there's a, a curtain between them. And that curtain is called the veil, and it's covered with images of cherubim, right? Just stitched onto the fabric. In Solomon's temple, they're carved all over the woodwork, right? So it's not just that they're in there, they're all over the place um, in the temple and the tabernacle. Yeah. Yeah. How do they know what cherubim look like? It's a fantastic question that we don't have an answer for. So never. So there's a lot of really interesting detail in Scripture about how to build the ark, how to build the, the altar of incense and the table. And it just says build cherubim. <laughs> it's, it's weird. So we don't know how they know. Now, later we get images. And we'll talk about this in a minute. We, um, we get some images, uh, descriptions, but those come way after Exodus. Yeah. 
So the question is, were they part of other cultures' mythologies? Um, yeah, yes and no. So as, as far as I know, the, the idea of the cherubim is, is unique to Judaism, but certainly this idea of spiritual beings and messengers is not totally unique to Judaism or the Israelite faith. And um, what is more distinctive about the faith of Israel is that rather than having lots of little gods who occasionally work for a more powerful God, we have you know, these, these people that are clearly understood as servants to a, to a master, right? I mean, so Hermes is the messenger of Zeus in a very different way than an angel is the messenger of Yahweh, right? Hermes can often go off and do totally crazy things and ignore Zeus and then come back later and be in his good graces. It doesn't work that way with angels and cherubim. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, so in addition to uh, Genesis and the Ark and the Tabernacle, um, we have these great visions in Scripture. And this is where we do get some really interesting descriptions of what they look like that the author described in the video. Um, there's a great vision in Isaiah 6. They call them seraphim, but we think they're the same thing. There's a vision in Ezekiel. Um, but I'll read the one in Revelation because, again, I think it's the most familiar. And again, this is Revelation chapter 4 this beautiful vision of, um, of God in heaven. And again, we have a throne, by the, as an aside, that weird picture they keep showing for, for God, that's a throne, right? I didn't get that for a long time. So anyway, so again, and, and the vision revelation, we have a throne, one seated on the throne that's not described because that's Yahweh, that's God. And then we have 24 thrones around it, right? That's the, the divine council, the, the elders, and then it says, around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Okay, those are the cherubim. Now, um, in addition to being the guardians of God's divine presence, um, we mentioned that they sort of represent all of the beings in creation. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. So I think it's, there's great significance that it is cherubim that are placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden after sin happens, right? So remember, God's vision is that all of heaven and earth would be united um, under his leadership through us, right? And he makes humans, uh, gives us dominion over, over the animals and the birth beasts of the field. And he brings us into his presence and he walks with us in the garden. And then we sin and we run from God's presence and he kicks us out of the garden. And Satan, the, the evil spirit, helps us and he kicks him out of the garden. And then he places the cherubim there, not just to protect us from wandering into his presence, but I think also to, to give us an image of what was supposed to have happened, right? Because these are beings that represent all of the physical world that God has made, right? The animals that crawl on the ground and the beasts of burden and the wild animals and the flying animals and humans. But they're also these clearly spiritual beings, right, with wings and and so in a way, it's almost like God saying, hey, gosh, this is what I was hoping you guys would become, right? I was hoping you'd be this union that these cherubim 
kind of represent. Does that, that make sense? Okay. Um, can we go to angels? Are we good? Okay, let's talk about angels for a minute. Um, so, uh, what did you learn about angels you didn't already know? Well, what do you what do you know about angels? No wings. Okay, this you know this is like the final nail in the coffin of the Christmas nativity scene that we thought we understood, right? Jim, first you told us Jesus wasn't born in a stable. Then you told us we don't know how many wise men there were, and now you're telling me the angels don't have wings. It's very disappointing. Um, so this is actually really significant. And I know it's a bummer. You do not have to go to your Christmas tree and pull the wings off all your little figures. Um, but it's significant they don't have wings because they look like us, okay? Again, uh, in the Bible, yes, the cherubim have wings. Sometimes, metaphorically, because God's described with a lot of metaphors, God's described as having wings, right? It's a metaphor. God doesn't literally have a body. Um, but the angels look very much like us, look very, very human. Now, they're not human, right? But in Scripture, every single time an angel appears, um, they, they are described as people, like they look human, okay? Um, but, oh, I, so, so, what does angel mean? You might remember what the word angel means? Messenger, fantastic. Okay, I didn't mean to show that one. Um, so in, in Greek, the word angelos, or in Hebrew, the word malak, both mean the exact same thing, messenger. By the way, in scripture, there are many non-divine or non-Elohim messengers, right? If I said, um, hey, Krista, could you please go tell Dan that youth group needs to end early tonight, Krista would be an angel, right? She is an angel, um, uh, right? Uh, <laughs> but, but there are many angels in scripture that are purely human, okay? But if you are a messenger of God, right, sent from you know, the spiritual world to the earthly realm, then you're an angel like we're talking about. You're a divine angel, right? Or an Elohim angel, okay? Um, they are messengers or, or they are on mission for God. Um, not unlike us, their purpose is to point to who? God, right? So angels aren't supposed to be the main idea. Um, we can really mess up a little bit, right? If we get really obsessed with all this spiritual being stuff and we start thinking about, uh, boy, there's nine ranks of angels and these are better than that. I'm going to make sure I pray to the right angel for them. You're in a lot of trouble, right? Because they don't want to be the main idea. Right? They want you to think about God. Um, Hebrews 1, 14, chapter 1 of Hebrews talks all about how Jesus is superior to angels. Um, but it says, are not all angels spirits in the divine service? sent to serve those who inherit salvation. So they're in service to God, and therefore when he sends them, they are often sometimes in service to us, right? Not in the sense of they obey us, but like, you know, they're coming here to help us, okay? Um, where do we, can you think of any places where we see angels in the Bible? This is any place at all. At the, at the tomb with the shepherds, Jacob's ladder, Mary, fiery furnace, okay, Elizabeth, yep, because her, her, her um, husband sees one in the temple, yep, lion's den, boy, they're everywhere, okay, good, they have the fiery furnace and, and Daniel, so, so many places, all right, uh, do you think angels only show up, like, in the past? No. I don't think so either, right, so if they're all over the place in the Bible, they might be all over the place still. 
Um, okay. What, uh, oh, I just keep doing that before I ask you the question. Um, what happens in the Bible when people see angels? What are their responses? What's the main one? Awe and fear, right? You're like, well, holy smokes, this is not a normal experience, right? And, you know, I, I think about the um, experience of the shepherds, right? And we just, you guys mentioned the shepherds when they're, the shepherds in the field abiding their flocks by night, and all of a sudden the angel appears before them, and the glory of the Lord shows around them, and they were terrified, or sore afraid, right? Yeah. Um, so that's a normal response, right? If you see a human, it was all glowy and there's some awe going on. Right? What's the other response? This is a this is a harder one. What's the other response that happens often in scripture with angels? They don't know it's an angel, right? Or ignorance. Okay. So what's that? And they don't believe. Okay. Um, so uh, we, I just read that Luke one. That Luke passage is, is the, the story of the shepherds in the field. They clearly know it's an angel and they are clearly freaked out. Um, here's another story. In Genesis chapter 19, two angels wander into the town of Sodom. You guys remember this story? And they wander around and they go to the town square um, and they're looking for a place to stay the night. And in uh, that culture at that time, you would expect a kind person to say, oh, you're new to our village. Come in and, and stay in my home tonight. Um, and so this nice guy named Lot does that. He happens to be Abraham's cousin or nephew, rather. Uh, and so they go to Lot's house. But then the whole town shows up and they say, send those men out. We want to rape them. Right? We want to have sex with them. Does anybody know those are angels? Does Lot know they're angels? He does not. Do the people of Sodom know they're angels? Well, they're either really stupid or they don't either. Right? Um, so ignorance is not an uncommon experience when people encounter an angel. Uh, by the way, um, this is a, there's a scripture in Hebrews that says, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by doing uh, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Entertain angels unaware. So this was my point earlier. It, it may be that there are angels around all the time and how we treat others. Um, we might not be treating a human, right? With the store clerk or the, your kid's teacher or the person you passed on the road. Uh, how are we doing? Yeah, okay, briefly. Um, so uh, Genesis 18 and 19 are really interesting. On your own, later on, go read Genesis 18 and 19. Genesis 18 is a story of three individuals who show up um, at Abram's home. He's, he's a nomadic person, so it is tense. Uh, Abram and Sarai, before they become Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, maybe it's after. It doesn't matter. It's those two people. And uh, at, at that moment, Abraham sees them, immediately runs forward, bows before them, says, you know, if you, if you don't mind, you know, please stay and let me bring you food and drink. And he runs off and he and his wife spend all this time making a meal and bring it to these guests. Right? And it turns out those people are God, or at least one of them is God. We'll talk about that in a minute. And two of them are the angels that are going to Sodom. Um, I read that story many years before I realized, I don't think Abraham has any idea who they are at the beginning of the story. Okay, so Abraham doesn't, there, there'd be nothing meritous about um, God showing up and you rolling out the red carpet, right? Why would we even tell that story? Whoop-de-doo, of course you roll out the red carpet for God, right? You'd be an idiot not to. What's shocking about the story is these three strangers come by and before he knows it's God and his angels, Abraham does all this for them. 
the very next chapter is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And we see what other people do before they know they're angels, right? They're going to rape them and kill them. Um, so we're, we're contrasting hospitality, right? How do you treat other people before you know who they are? Okay. Uh, so um, Jesus says, if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. In other words, if you knew that person was an angel that you were yelling at um, as they drove down the highway, you probably wouldn't yell at them. Right? Are you willing to take the risk that they might be? Or are you better off um, showing the, the grace and the love of Jesus Christ to everybody on the chance that one of those people you're doing that to might be not a person? Okay, uh, let, me, let me pause. Questions about angels and cherubim. And if you're online, you have to unmute yourself. You can ask a question too. Uh, yeah, Wendy. Yes. Okay. When, right. Yes. Yeah. Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life is actually an excellent biblical example of an angel. Yeah. Well, well said. No wings serve in service to God and in service to George Bailey. Yeah. Uh, it really is. Uh, ironically, then the bell rings and every time a bell rings, it gets its wing. You take that one line out. It's very biblical. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great movie. Yeah. Great. Other questions? Yeah. Terry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The 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 point just how many times we don't even think about who we are speaking to or caring for. And then of course Jesus makes this even more extreme, right? Because when Jesus in the um 25th chapter of Matthew says, you know, whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. We're not just talking about doing it to angels now. We're talking about doing it to Yahweh himself. Right. Yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah. What about the bad angels? Ah, the bad angels. They do. But you got to come back next week to learn about them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, but we are, that's where we're going. That's our whole thing next week is bad angels. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I hope. Well, okay, a, a little preview. Um, I think there are some significant differences, at least in scripture, between good angels and bad angels. We never have a story of a bad angel taking human form. Okay, it appears that at some point when they divorce themselves from God, they become less than they used to be. No surprise there. Uh, and they become more like parasites. So we have, we have demons possessing people, but I can't think of a single time where other than Satan, who's a little different, and with Jesus in the, in the wilderness, other than Satan with Jesus in the wilderness, there's no time I can think of where a demon or an evil spirit, evil Elohim takes physical form. Yeah. It is comforting. Yeah, yeah. But it means that that jerk is really a person in need of God's grace, not a, a demon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, somebody asked earlier about um, guardian angels. I forgot it was Bev. Um, and 
the Bible's not super clear about this, but there's one passage where Jesus talks about letting little children come unto him, right? It's a couple of times he talks about children. And one time he says, their angels are always before our father in heaven, right? As though those children have angels. Now, does Jesus mean that every child has their own guardian angel? I don't know. You will have to ask him. Um, but never does it say that we all get our own angel. Okay, that's not, it could be true, but it's never stated in scripture. But children seem to have some kind of special deal, maybe, which is really interesting. Maybe it's their innocence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, we, um, we're doing great. So we're gonna talk about one more big idea. And this is um, the angel of the Lord. Okay, so we, um, we, we, I think the, yeah, the author mentioned Gabriel and Michael, right? If you want to read about Gabriel and Michael in your notes, I gave you a couple of places where you can read some of their stories. They show up primarily in Daniel um, and in uh, the Gospels and then in the Revelation. But um, there's another figure that shows up. And, and Gabriel and Michael, by the way, are the only named angels. And even their names aren't really names, right? They're just descriptions of God, right? The God, God is a warrior who's like God. That's, that's what they're going to um, But there's a figure called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. And um, to explain this idea, I got one more video for you, okay? So in the Bible, reality is made up of two overlapping realms, the heavens and the earth, our space and God's space. And while life here on earth may seem ordinary, sometimes we can encounter heaven right here in our own realm. Yes, this happens a number of times in the Bible. And when it does, we often encounter a fascinating character, the angel of Yahweh, or in most translations of the Bible, the angel of the Lord. Now we've talked about angels. They're spiritual messengers who perform missions for God. But the angel of the Lord is no mere angel. How so? Well, every time he appears, he's described in a way that's purposefully puzzling. And it leaves you wondering, was that an angel sent by Yahweh, or was that Yahweh himself? What do you mean? Here's one of many examples. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's runaway Egyptian slave. And we read this. The angel of Yahweh called to Hagar. But then this angel speaks as if he is Yahweh, saying, I will give you many descendants. And then Hagar responds and says, you are God who sees me. So the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. But that can't be. In the Bible, you can't see Yahweh or you'll die. Yeah. So this story and others like it are inviting us into a paradox that Yahweh is above all, inaccessible to us. But sometimes he reveals himself to us in ways that we can see and understand. And that's where this character shows up. He's Yahweh made visible to us. Yes, distinct from Yahweh and also Yahweh. This is very similar to other biblical stories about prophets who get a glimpse into God's space, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Daniel. And what they see is a glorious human figure on a throne who's called Yahweh. So the one on the throne and the angel of Yahweh, this is the same person. Exactly. Watch all this come together in the famous story of Moses and the burning bush, where we read, the angel of Yahweh appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And when Yahweh saw that Moses stopped to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. So this person in the bush is called the angel of Yahweh, then Yahweh, and then God. And then later in the story, Moses learns that the figure in the burning bush is the one leading Israel out of Egypt in a pillar of fire and cloud. 
And that's the one who later takes up residence in the tabernacle. The tabernacle. This is the throne room of God himself. You got it. The angel of the Lord is the royal glory of Yahweh appearing as a human. Now, keep all this in mind as we start talking about Jesus. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we're told that from all eternity, Jesus was with God and was God. Distinct from God and also God. That's the same paradox we saw with the angel of Yahweh. Right. And then John says that God's word became human and set up a tabernacle among us. The temple presence of the invisible God. Exactly. Now check this out. There's a story about when Jesus took three of his followers up to a mountain and his true identity was revealed. He was transformed into a glorious human figure. Okay, I see what's going on here. So the angel of the Lord was God appearing like a human and Jesus is God now become a human. Yes. And notice this. In the New Testament, no one ever uses the phrase angel of the Lord to describe Jesus. Why not? Well, they wanted to avoid the idea that Jesus was merely an angel. For them, Jesus was Yahweh God become human in order to fulfill his ultimate mission to fully reunite heaven and earth once and for all. Okay, um, so this is our last big category of Elohim, and it's, and it's maybe the most confusing one. So uh, we've heard some of these stories before, and maybe you've noticed this weirdness. The, the story of the burning bush is an excellent example. There are other examples of this. The story of Gideon. Right? Gideon's on the threshing floor, and the angel of the Lord appears, and then the Lord speaks to him, and then the angel does stuff, and the Lord does stuff, and you're like, which one is it? Um, so uh, those blurred lines between the angel of the Lord and the Lord are, I, I think our, our video says correctly, intentional. This is not to say that every angel that ever shows up is, is like God in disguise, Okay. We really do believe that some of them are their own beings. Um, and it's not to say for sure that we know who the angel of the Lord is. Maybe the angel of the Lord is just a, a spokesperson for God. But the way the Bible describes this figure is weird enough that, that it does seem like there's a tension between it being just a servant of God and maybe being God somehow in limited form with us. There is a huge change between the angel of the Lord and Jesus, right? So the angel of the Lord is clearly God in some limited form in our presence. Jesus is God in his fullness in our presence. The angel of the Lord is clearly not a physical being. Jesus is fully human as well as fully God, okay? But there's a sense that the angel sort of prefigures Christ. Um, so... Uh, yeah, we're going to skip that. Um, so there's a line in Hebrews 1. Um, so the, the first chapter of Hebrews is devoted to the idea that Jesus is superior to angels. Right? All the things that God has made, Jesus is above them. Uh, and Hebrews 1.4 says, Jesus is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so what the author of Hebrews wants to say, actually for the first two chapters, really, is that, yeah, I know there are all these Elohim out there, all these divine beings out there, 
And I'm not suggesting that Jesus is a version of that. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is just one of the angels or one of the cherubim or part of the divine council or even the angel of the Lord. He is Yahweh, period, right? He is superior to everything else God has made, spiritual and physical, because he's the one who made everything, the exact representation of God's being in human form. Um, but maybe the angel of the Lord is like God's attempt to start getting us ready for what he's going to do in Jesus later. Um, and, and there's almost, I kind of love this idea, there's almost this sense that, yes, God is too holy to be in the presence of sinners, but also he loves us so much, he just can't stay away. Right? So he finds these little ways throughout time of saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down and spend time with my kids. I, I know they're not living like I want them to live, but I'm going to be with them a little bit. I'm not just sending a messenger this time um, until he can come fully in Jesus. Okay, um, let me pause there. Questions about that idea? Jim? Is that why when Jesus had to come as a human, because of the coming form of God? Yeah, so the question is is that part of why Jesus had to come as human? Yes. So, this type Yes. So, so it, it uh, scripture is very clear that um, God is so holy, so perfect, so like goodness incarnate. Anybody that's even vaguely not good is going to have a hard time being with him. And that ordinarily for a sinful human to see God is to die. Right? We hear this message again and again and again and again in scripture. However, we also have people seeing God in scripture, right? It's that same tension of God saying, hey, I am holy. You need to respect me. You need to recognize the seriousness of sin. But I kind of can't stay away from you. Like, I, I kind of love you so much that I'm going I'm to bend my rules a little bit, right? So I'm going to go wrestle with Jacob, and, which is sometimes an angel and sometimes God, right? And I'm going to show up in the burning bush. And I, I'm going I'm to do all these things because I just, I just want to be with you. Um, but you still need to realize how serious your sin is and how holy I am. Um, the humanness of Jesus is important for so many reasons, but um, yes, it is partly what allows us to be in the fullness of God's presence, right? The, the humanity of Jesus protects us from just being wiped out when God shows up. Um, it's also, as we mentioned earlier, right, that we have a, a, a human rebellion. We need a, we need a human who's going to put that right. And there's a, a component of how all of these messengers of God, all these Elohim, or like foreshadowing Jesus, right? So what, what happens when a messenger of God, a little Elohim shows up? Well, either you're terrified of them and awestruck, as people are often terrified and awestruck of Jesus when he does incredible things, not just the transfiguration, but when he raises the dead and all the things he does, or you ignore them as regular people, which often happens to Jesus, right? And so there's a sense that, yeah, of course, if that's what happens to a little Elohim, it's gonna happen to a big, the Elohim in a much larger form but a similar form when Jesus finally shows up. Yeah, that's great. Other questions about the angel of the Lord? Okay. Um, I, got, I got three minutes. Um, I really, I keep thinking this is funny and it's not funny. Why does all this matter? Okay. Um, so uh, j just some big ideas for I'd love for you to play with. I'd love for you to think about how 
the structure of the spiritual world, the right structure of the spiritual world, reflects the right structure of the physical one. So, for example, um, you know, the, the cherubim represent the, the physical and the spiritual united in its right relationship to God. Or angels represent um, what it looks like when you are fully obedient to God and fully in service to everybody else. Right? Or the angel of the Lord represents this idea of you know, the, the, the future incarnate Christ. So understanding all of this stuff isn't just cool hypothetical stuff. It's also, boy, what does it mean for me to live in such a way that my spirit and the spiritual life in which I live are united in my physical life like a cherubim, right? What does it mean for me to live so that my obedience to God and my love for others are similar to that of an angel in service to God and service to others? Um, I think that rightly understanding spiritual beings keeps us from a host of sin. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this more next week, but it is really easy to get fixated on all of this stuff instead of fixated on God, right? And God is supposed to, Stephen Curtis Chapman says, God's our one magnificent obsession, right? I love that, I love that phrase. Um, so if anything else is your magnificent obsession other than God, you're in trouble. And there is, there is no good angel or cherubim who wants to be that, right? So these are helpful because they let us know what God's world looks like, but they also are supposed to be arrows that point us to God and not point us to themselves. Um, I really love this vision of a God who shares, his, a king who shares his authority. And uh, Jay St. Clair and I are reading a book right now called Future Church, and it talks about the distinction between, a, uh, between celebrity and authority. And celebrity is a zero-sum game, right? If, if people are reading about you in the news, they're not reading about me in the news. If you have more people voting for you, then I have less people voting for me. Um, but authority is different, right? Authority can grow as I give it away. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, so have some, right? And go and make disciples of all nations. Um, and Jesus doesn't get weaker when he gives his authority away. He gets stronger. Right? So in the same way, that's I mean, it's really the heart of the identity of God. At the very beginning, God says, yeah, I, I'm in charge of everything, but I love giving my authority away. I, I love it so much that I'm willing to risk you making really bad decisions because I'd rather you be able to make those decisions and learn from them and grow from them than just be little robots that run around doing what I tell you all the time. Right? So it's a really beautiful idea, and it makes me think about how we envision authority in our families and in our workplaces and in our churches. Do we see it as something that I have to get more of? Do we see it as something that grows as I have the privilege of giving it away? Um, and then all of this all of this is preparation for Jesus, right? So re remember that all this stuff that happens in the Old Testament, all this divine counsel stuff, all the stuff that happens in the New Testament, it's all either getting us ready for Jesus or putting us back to him. And so the angel of the Lord is the most obvious example of that. Um, but if we end up thinking about something as we go forward, it should be, you know, where is Christ in all of this, right? And Revelation is going to tell us in chapter five, he's on the throne. Right? I mean, yeah, there's cherubim around it, and there's elders around it, and there's angels around them, and one day there'll be humans up there too, but the one on the throne is the one that matters, and that's Jesus, right? The, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. Okay. Um, I really appreciate you guys doing this with me. I'm having a lot of fun. I know it's a lot of weird stuff, so I hope it's uh, been useful for you. Uh, next time we're together, um, we're going to talk about Shirley's question.
What about the Elohim who rebelled, the bad Elohim? And the answer is, join us next week to find out. Um, so let me, let me uh, close this in prayer, and then I'll stick around if you need me uh, for questions. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the incredible ways that you have invested in us as your children. You have given us your authority. You have made us in your image. You have called us to be a place where heaven and earth come together. And when we have strayed from that, you have sent your messengers and your ambassadors and even come yourself most powerfully in the person of Jesus Christ to bring us back to you so that once again, we could dwell in your presence so that we could be fully with you and yet fully ourselves. So we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us this week to reflect on um, what a rightly ordered kingdom, spiritual and physical looks like. And we pray you'd help us uh, to live into the image of Jesus and to be your faithful servants as uh, angels and cherubim are as well. And all this we pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.